We read the word of God this evening as we find it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, reading on into chapter 5. <clears throat> We're going to begin reading with our text, which is 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. And the first verses 13 through 18 are our text, but we'll read on into chapter 5 to put it in context. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, to sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, Dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. But of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, Yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night, when they shall say peace and safety, and sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light, and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness." Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. They that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Our text is the verses 13 through 18. The Apostle is concerned in our text, beloved, to clear up a certain confusion in the life and understanding of the church in Thessalonica. He had labored there briefly, but had been driven out and had been, for his own safety, taken down to Athens and then traveled over to Corinth, all because of the turmoil that had begun uh, in Philippi and then in Berea and Thessalonica and the Jews in the area who had sought to destroy him and his labors. 
So there are things that Paul feels like he has not finished in his labor with them. And that in part is because he had reports of the situation from Timothy and Silas. Now it's in that light that he's writing this epistle to them to clarify certain points, and he writes the second one for the same reason, to kind of clarify certain things so that their expectations are not uh, mistaken. The concern is not the question of the resurrection from the dead, like in 1 Corinthians 15, but it's really something that ought to be rather striking to us. His concern is that the congregation in Thessalonica is afraid that the believers who have died and left this life will somehow miss out on the joy of Christ's second coming. And it's to clarify that point in certain respects that the apostle writes the words of our text. And he does that because it is a matter of our comfort in dealing with the loss of fellow saints and believers in the midst of sin, but not only, but also death and sorrow. And as with that in mind, we want to consider this evening the comfort of our Lord's return. We need to put it somewhat in context as our passage this evening is often corrupted by strange doctrines. We need to understand its basis and see the broader context here then its content, and finally also the joy, which is really the apostle's main concern. To begin with, we need to kind of turn to Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, where he is talking to the Thessalonians about their salvation. And they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. That was the wonder that God wrought on the mission field in Thessalonica. But God did not simply get, bring them near unto himself as he has done us, but he also gave them to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. There is something coming on the whole world. What is coming is from the viewpoint of the wickedness of the world, the development of the world in sin unto judgment, the total depravity doesn't stand still. It is like a growing weed that develops all the horror of its fruit and rebellion against God and uncleanness, until finally the judgment of God comes upon a world that is justly under the wrath of God because of sin. And as he speaks of it in chapter 5, which we touched upon, he again deals with the fact, as Jesus did, does in Matthew 24, that that day is coming. It's coming like a thief in the night, that that wicked world that says peace and safety will not see it nor understand it, because they are in darkness and children of the night. But we, being redeemed and brought near unto God in living covenant fellowship with him, as children adopted of his grace, are made to be children of the day and children of the light, so that we should not be unaware of these things, 
though the day and the hour of the Lord's coming is not known to us. We know the signs of that coming, which tell us that it is coming nearer and nearer. Now, it's in that context that he says to them, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, in our text, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others who have no hope. The wicked, of course, in their life in this world, perish. They perish already under the wrath of God. They are dead in sins to begin with. Their death is a terrible judgment that brings to a close the earthly life of one who walks in wickedness. And like the rich man in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, they endure the judgment of God that comes upon ungodly men and unbelief. They perish. And that is also to be with respect to body as well as soul, and our Savior himself tells us so when he says to us in, Matthew, in John chapter 5, verse 28, that the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. There is an hour, a day, a day of wrath, that is coming upon the wickedness of this world. They may say to each other, peace and safety, but it is folly. And the apostle is concerned that you and I understand some of these things, but that we understand it in the right perspective. The Lord is going to come again. and When he comes again, he is going to take us both those who have died and those who are living together, and we are going to be gathered together into one multitude to meet the Lord at his coming in the air. That event belongs to the wonder of Christ's second coming. And as we consider that, we need to put the concern also that is then set before us. And that is, what about the believers who have died and left this life? Number one, the first point we should note is that they, he does not speak about their death the way he would speak about it of ungodly men. He speaks of them as asleep in Jesus. That's a beautiful and a very striking description of a believer who has died. He doesn't perish. He is not lost in his sins. He does not sink down under the wrath of God from spiritual death to eternal death. He falls asleep in Jesus. At the same time, we must be careful as to what the reference point is. He is speaking about it from the viewpoint that you and I see it of what happens to our bodies when we die. For a believer, bodily death is indeed a rending of body and soul. It's not natural. It's not a normal process. 
It belongs to the working through of the judgment of God in a wicked world. But Jesus died that death, which is the judgment of God upon sin, when he voluntarily gave himself over unto death, laid hold upon it, and entered it, and declared as he hung on the cross, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And with a loud voice, he died. That death, which is the judgment of God upon sin, and which is manifested in the funeral home, as you see it and I see it, is taken away in the cross of Jesus Christ. You and I must understand that. It doesn't look any different where the death of the wicked and the death of the righteous does not appear to the eye, from what I can see, any different. And in fact, in Ecclesiastes, it's pointed out that man is like the beast that dies, and there is no difference between a man and a beast, because both return to the earth, return to the dust, and that which happens to a man cannot be seen with the eye. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth down to the earth? What you and I see is therefore not the basis on which we evaluate this whole matter. The world walks by sight. You and I, by the grace of God, walk by faith, believing those things that are not seen, that we cannot touch and handle directly, but know because God has revealed it in his word and written it upon our hearts by the grace of the Holy Spirit as sure and faithful and resting in his promises, we look at our fellow saints who have died and we say of them, they sleep in Jesus. Because we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is not only the answer to the burden of death itself, but also is the foundation of the hope of our resurrection from the dead. A resurrection not unto judgment and condemnation in the lake of fire, the resurrection of damnation, but the resurrection unto life, which God will raise up his believing people from the dead and give unto us, even to our bodies, the glory of the resurrection of our Savior, so that as that new life that you have already now, regeneration, is resurrection life, which Christ imparts his life unto us that it should become our life, so also will he quicken our bodies by the resurrection from the dead and impart unto us the wonder and glory of his resurrection. And the apostle describes that very extensively in 1 Corinthians 15. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. 
its own body of flesh and blood belonging to this world. It is raised a heavenly, glorified, sinless body. We need that. Our bodies are part of our sinful flesh. They are ours through the generations from Adam and Eve, and they are in themselves by nature the instrument of sin, not only in our external activity, but in all that internal activity of your mind and heart and will that stirs up all the troubles of sin in your life. The body is not evil, though God didn't make it evil, but we are fallen. And the result is that we need a salvation that quickens and regenerates and renews not only the soul, but also raises us up from death to life, bodily. We even make that confession in the Apostles' Creed. We believe in the resurrection of the body. To the heathen, that is complete nonsense. The body rots away and is gone. It's burned with fire among the pagans. It is buried in the grave. It is nothing other than a curiosity for archaeologists to dig up and examine in a laboratory. Even those Egyptian mummies, remember, are going to rise from the dead. They don't see any of that. You and I believe by according to the word of God, and we are not to be ignorant of it, that we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus shall he bring with him, and they shall rise from the dead. Now there's a second element the apostle is making in his point here. Where then is the soul? If the body is, in a sense, sleeping in the grave, awaiting the resurrection of the body, where is the soul? And the answer is it's not sleeping. It's in heaven with Christ. And the apostle plainly says so when he says that those that sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Well, where is he? He is in heaven. God's right hand. Where then are they that are with him now? They are in heaven. Heavenly glory. That is his promise. Jesus has said to us, John chapter 14, in my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Where I am, there ye may be also. That's true of his second coming. That's true already of the saints that die. They are with the Lord. They are with him. They're not ghosts. There is no such thing. They're evil spirits that may imitate such things in the foolishness of the unbelief of wicked men. The believers depart this life and they go to be with the Lord, which is far better. And in fact, Paul even talks about that, that that's part of his desire. Though it was necessary that he continue laboring. 
You and I, as we contemplate these things, must teach them to our children and grandchildren because the days of persecution and trial may very well draw near unto us more fully than they have in the past. The Christian church in many lands suffers death at the hands of wicked men, and they do so courageously because they know that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. They are seeking the things which are above, and their hope is very really that those that sleep in Jesus are first of all with him in heaven. They're not lost. And that means, too, for us as God's people, that we have a hope that the wicked do not. They perish everlastingly. Their sorrow is incurable. But we have a hope that is found in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they shall rise again from the dead, and that our separation, therefore, from fellow believers of whatever age and relationship with us is a temporary one because they sleep in the power and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he who is the word made flesh is able to raise them from the dead. And in Revelation, it even speaks of the fact that the oceans, the seas, will give up their dead, those that have drowned. All shall rise from the dead, some unto the resurrection of life and some unto the resurrection of damnation. You and I, therefore, don't go to the funeral home at the death of a believer, whether that's young child or an elderly saint with the sorrow and grief and hopelessness of loss that the ungodly do. There is grief there. But it's not sorrowing as those who have no hope. Understand there's a real sorrow. But Paul says no, it's not a hopeless sorrow. That's not the way of a child of God. And you see that when you deal with the loss of loved ones in the Christian church. Now it's in the light of that that the apostle is dealing with something that might seem to us a little strange, but it's not unimportant. The Thessalonians are waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're waiting for him to come from heaven, to wait for his son from heaven. They know that they've been delivered from the great day of wrath. They are looking for him to descend from heaven. They have an expectation that is perhaps a little over, uh, over and above what they ought to have in the sense of trying to expect it tomorrow or the next day. And uh, therefore, even some of them, uh, as is clear from his second epistle, he has to tell them, no, you have to work. You have to be busy with the things of God's kingdom. Remember, it's, he comes as a thief, and you don't know the day and the hour. Therefore, while you are looking for these things and expecting them, that must be put in its proper perspective. 
But one of the things that was troubling them was the idea that this isn't a joyous occasion. When Jesus comes again and all the glory of God is revealed in him, and as he descends from heaven, what about those saints that are sleeping in the grave? Are they going to miss out or be late to the wonderful blessings of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the clouds of glory? Are only those alive going to have the privilege of beholding the whole wonder of that glorious, joyful, blessed event, and the poor saints who have died will miss out on it? You and I might think that's kind of a strange concern, but that is the way in which they were thinking. And the apostle says to them, no, that's not the way it is. I don't want you to be ignorant of this. You're not to sorrow as those who have no hope about those who are asleep. In the first place, what do you have to understand? When Jesus comes, those saints who are now with him in heaven are not parted from him. They will come with him so that they that are asleep shall indeed, when he comes, will God bring with him. Here are the souls descending with Christ from heaven. All the saints that have died from Abel and Noah and Abraham and all the saints that have died who are in heaven with Christ, they're not parted from him. They come with him from heaven. They're there on the day. It's their joy too. Not only that, but the dead in Christ, now he's looking at it not from the viewpoint of their descent, but from the viewpoint of their bodies lying in the grave, asleep in the care of Christ. They're going to rise from the dead. And as they rise from the dead, that in fact must happen before those who are living can meet Jesus at his coming. So that you've got things that, you know, frankly, we don't completely understand. Here are the souls coming this way, the bodies rising this way, the union of the two in the glory of the resurrection. While we who are living, wherever that may be, are, as the Apostle Paul says in Corinthians, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall rise. That moment when Jesus comes again, all the believing children of God whose bodies lay in the grave shall rise and their souls shall be reunited with their bodies and they shall be glorified and changed. Now the wicked are rising then too. Because that is also the day of wrath. And the day of final judgment. As in that connection, you understand that one of the doctrinal errors that floats around the Christian church today needs to be corrected. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel, 
with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, the resurrected saints, to meet the Lord in the air. Now, what about that? Well, if we go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we must also see um, what he is talking about. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he picks up this subject again. He says in verses 1 and 2, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's still talking about this same subject, and by our gathering together with him, that's meeting him in the clouds, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or troubled. And then he's dealing with a doctrinal confusion. Evidently there was some rumors or written things that were floating around. When is this event? And what are the context of it? The context of it is the falling away of many, the coming of Antichrist. And so in chapter 2, verse 10 and following, he describes the effect of that working of Satan with all deceivableness of unrighteousness and then that perish. And he describes it in verse 8 concerning that wicked who shall be revealed. That's Antichrist. So what is happening is the church is in tribulation and there's Antichrist and it's exactly as in that moment that Christ comes again. And so we read that Christ shall consume the Antichrist and shall destroy him. He shall consume him with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. So when does this meeting the Lord in the air take place? After all the sorrows of the church through the period of Antichrist, including the falling away of, the, of many, the whole description in Matthew 24 uh, in detail. And when Christ comes, the wicked are judged, Antichrist is consumed and destroyed, and we are gathered together unto him in one great glorious event. And the basic characteristic of that event, as you find it in our text, is what? It's public, visible, loud, noisy, earth-shattering in character. It's not a secret snatching out called the rapture. That's a human invention from the 1800s by some followers of a cult. When you read books like Left Behind and you read some of the other nonsense that floats around in evangelical Christianity, it is exactly that. Nonsensical fiction that is unbiblical. And all I have to do is trace it out right here in Thessalonians. It's, it's, it's very clear. When Christ comes, he's going to come this way and you are going to see it. It doesn't matter whether you've died because you're going to be raised from the dead and come with Christ and never be separated from him. Or you will be living 
And you will see it with your eyes as you are transformed in a moment of the twinkling of an eye when that trumpet sounds and Christ comes again. In either case, the whole church, redeemed of God, shall see and behold that the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. And when Jesus comes, and he comes in Revelation as riding on a white horse to war with the wicked and to consume and destroy them, it's going to lead into the final judgment of the great white throne. He comes with a shout. That shout is so earth-shattering that Peter describes it in terms of the very stuff of the universe, the elements. What are they going to do? They're going to melt with fervent heat. What's going to happen to the starry heavens, that canopy of of the stars is going to be rolled up and cast away. It's going to be like a worn out old garment. And the barrier, therefore, between the heaven of glory, where the saints are now, which is not in this universe as we know it, you can't travel there in a space trip, that barrier between the universe, the heaven above, and this universe as we know it, that barrier is taken away. Christ, by his shout of victory and authority and command, he will descend from heaven with a shout And then the apostle says, and all the angels of God, particularly the archangel, which is probably to be understood of Michael, he shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. That trumpet figure is very real. It is a note of victory, a note of judgment, a note of deliverance for his people, and a note of joy all at the same time for God's church. Jesus is coming again, and he is coming very quickly as you see sin develop in the world around you. And when Jesus comes again on the clouds of glory, when he descends from heaven, then the fullness of these things shall come to pass. We which are alive and remain, along with the saints who are rising from the dead and their soul and body is being joined, we shall, all of us, together with that wonder of God's redeeming grace, be caught up together with them into the clouds, the clouds upon which Christ is coming in judgment, and so we shall ever be with the Lord. So that means that when Jesus ascended into heaven, what the angels told the disciples, that you shall so see him come in like manner, is very real. This universe is not permanent. Our place in it is but for a moment. We are as the grass of the field that today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven. We die and we leave this life. Normally that's the infirmities of age. But it happens to young as well as old. First funeral I ever did, 
as a pastor was of a three-year-old with a crib death about three days before Christmas. God has his purpose in the funeral of a teenager. You young people are not immune to these things either. Death is real. But it is for us swallowed up in the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we look not for the things of this world because our treasure is not here. These words, the apostle says, are for our comfort. If your hope is here below and if you are fixated on the things of this world in a wrong way, there's not a whole lot of comfort here. It is as those who seek the things which are above, whose treasure is in heaven, whose heart is bound and united to Christ who is in heaven, walk by faith in the joy of salvation that you and I can find here a real comfort that speaks even to us Concerning the death of loved ones, our own death, as you get to be my age, you think about those things perhaps more than you would when you're younger. But we have a hope that the world does not know and that cannot even begin to conceive the wonderful things that God has prepared for them that love him. And as you and I wrestle with this in our life in a world that lies in the midst of death. We have the sure promise of God that we, together with all the saints, redeemed and glorified, we shall be caught up together with our fellow saints as the whole universe is passing away, the whole physics and chemistry and everything of the universe as we know it. Is being consumed and destroyed in the fire of the great day, we shall be caught up together with the fellow saints in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Because this world as we know it will be no more. Then follows the judgment. And those who have, are partakers of the joy of that meeting of the Lord have no need to fear that judgment because he has given us life and glory. A couple more things about that. That resurrection, what is it? It's not a return to this life. It's not a return to the body of flesh and blood. It is a return indeed to that body that was laid in the grave, but it's awakened, it's quickened, it's glorified. You and I are going to put on the glory of the resurrection of our Savior. Our bodies are going to be made like unto his glorious body. We shall see him, the Apostle John says, as he is, which we can't do now except by faith. The glory of Christ is revealed in the Mount of Transfiguration. It's revealed when John beholds Jesus standing in the midst of the candlesticks. The glory of our resurrection is that we shall radiate and take on and be partakers of 
that glory of Christ in the resurrection from the dead. We shall be made like him, he says in 1 John, for we shall see him as he is. That's our hope. It's not the strange fictional stuff of heaven that the world around us fabricates with Peter standing at pearly gates and all that other nonsense. It is a glory that involves putting on the holy perfection of our God in Jesus Christ in such a way that sin and all the ugliness of it is utterly eradicated from our human nature and our body is so glorified that it, it partakes in a reflective way the glory of God's holy perfection. A sinless perfection that this body of flesh and blood can't even begin to contain and understand and hold. That day is coming. That day draws near. You and I shall meet the Lord in the air. And it won't be secret. It will be very public. And it will be very visible. And the promises, so shall we ever be with the Lord. The real joy is that in body and soul we shall be made like him. We shall see him as he is. We shall be with him forever. No more separation between the Lord Jesus Christ and you. That is Jesus' longing as our mediator. You don't think of that, but he has a longing too, according to the Father's will. He prays that in John 17. He says, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. That they may behold my glory. That the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. The wonder of our salvation, beloved, is an unsearchable riches. We sometimes are in danger of becoming kind of dull of hearing. Contemplate these things. And you look at all the foolishness of sin around you. What is it worth? Nothing. Even the things of this life, earthly riches, it's just vanity. It's emptiness. But this, to be with him where he is in the light of that love wherewith God loves Christ dwelling in you and I in the glory of sinless perfection and never to be parted again from the beauty of that glory which is in Christ but to be with him where he is. You sang of that earlier. When I in righteousness at last thy glorious face shall see. When all the weary night is past and I awake with thee. 
to view the glories that abide, then, then I shall be satisfied. That's our hope. And in that is comfort for you and I when we lay a loved one in the grave. In many ways, beloved, that's the whole hope of the church, the Old and New Testaments. The Song of Solomon, which is often difficult to understand in chapter 2. Read in verse 10, it's the church speaking as the bride. My beloved spake and said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, and the rain is over and gone. And the flowers appear on the earth, and the time of the singing of the birds is come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in the land. The fig tree brick putteth forth her green figs, and the vines, the tender grape, give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. It's talking about the resurrection as a coming of the spring after the winter of this world. And the joy of the bride of Christ to be with him where he is and to be never separated from him again by time or space at all. That is our hope. And then the apostle says in our text, what? Comfort one another with these things and set your affection on them and not on things on earth. For you're dead to this world hid with Christ in God. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, how unsearchable are the riches of Christ in our salvation. How little we understand of those things which thou hast promised to them that love thee. Comfort our hearts in all our needs, in our afflictions and trials, Give us indeed to seek those things which are above. Bless us in thy grace, keep us in thy fatherly care. Also in the evening, be with those who are in distress in the congregation, burdened with the cares of life. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We sing Psalter number 420.